Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What would you say that a healthy church looks like? Uh, When medical people check for a person's health, they always go for the vital signs, don't they? They check things like body temperature, pulse rate, breathing. Sometimes they check a person's blood pressure because uh, these are the vital signs of, of health. But what are the vital signs of a healthy church? That's what we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of weeks because we don't always get that right, do we? Uh, for some people, the, uh, the vital signs are the things which you can sort of attach a number to, like, well, you know, how many people attend the church, or what is the rate of growth of the church, or uh, how, many, uh, uh, how many ministers are on the staff of the church, or uh, how, um, uh, you know, even questions like, well, how wealthy uh, is the church? Uh, these, uh, uh, some people, these, you can understand why people think that way, don't? Because uh, in some ways, these things do; they, these things may very well reflect the health of a church, 
but they may actually be completely unrelated to the health of a church as well. There, there are tangible things, uh, things that you can actually attach a number to. But uh, do you remember in the, uh, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation that uh, Jesus actually gives his uh, diagnosis of the spiritual health of a number of churches? Um, there was one church, which was uh, the church in Smyrna, which, uh, if you looked at that church, you would say that it is a very poor church. It's a church which suffers. It was a church that's persecuted. But Jesus actually said, well, they're actually a very rich church. You see, Jesus' diagnosis was the opposite of the world's. Uh, another church, on the other hand, was the church at Laodicea, which was a very wealthy church. But uh, Jesus did his diagnosis and declared them to be spiritually bankrupt. They were poor. They were pitiful. There was a church in Sardis. And the church in Sardis was a church that had a great reputation for being the kind of happening place. It was described as being a very alive church. That's what people thought. That's the church in town that's really pumping, that that's the church that's really alive. But Jesus actually declared the church to be dead. So his, his diagnosis is different to the diagnosis of the world. And it's because he's looking for different vital signs. So what are the vital signs of a healthy church? Well, this little book of Titus is very, very helpful to us in that regard. Uh, as I've looked at Titus... Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've only ever preached from Titus twice before and each time I've only preached on a, one section of it and it's always because we've been about to, to appoint elders to the church. I think there's a lot more to Titus than that actually. Uh, it, it's, it is actually, it's like a, it's a blueprint for a healthy church. In fact, if you open up your Bibles at Titus, you'll find it on page four, 844, You'll, you'll see that uh, the, the, the word health or healthy actually comes up a number of times. Now, uh, let me say this, that um, uh, it's not translated that way in the English for good reasons. You know, when we talk about a person who's uh, got a healthy mind, we talk about them as being sound in mind, don't we? We say that a person's, got, you know, they're sound in body, they're sound in mind. And what we mean is that they're healthy. It's the same in the New Testament, uh, that the word sound uh, is the same word that can equally and validly be translated as, as healthy. And so this, uh, uh, this, this term comes up a number of times in the book of Titus. And I've listed the verses for you there on, on your outline. Uh, it uh, keeps on talking about things being sound, things being healthy. Um, specifically, it refers to healthy doctrine. It refers to uh, healthy faith and healthy speech. So sound doctrine, sound faith, sound speech. Uh, this is actually a picture of, 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 a, of what a healthy church should look like. Now, let's uh, firstly get into some of the background of Titus. Titus, as you probably gather, is a letter which is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to a younger man who's involved in ministry. His name is Titus. That's the easy part. Titus was located on Crete, 
at the time that this letter was written if you've been to the mediterranean area you might know where crete is. if you haven't been there have a look at the map that's on your outline it'll tell you where crete is. it's an island in the mediterranean now we don't know how uh, we don't know precisely how the church in crete was planted um, it might have been planted by Paul it's, or one of his uh, associates. It's possible. Uh, it's just that it's not mentioned, uh, or the planting of the church is not mentioned in Paul's missionary journeys in Acts. That doesn't mean that he didn't do it. It just means that Luke didn't record it. Uh, alternatively, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, uh, we're told that there were Jewish people who uh, were from Crete, who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost uh, and they actually heard Peter preach the gospel. And so it's quite possible that these people from Crete, Jews from Crete, heard the gospel from Peter. They may have been converted and have taken the gospel back with them to Crete and, and, and therefore you have a church. A church is established, a church is started. Whatever the case... What we do know from chapter 1, verse 5, is that both Paul and Titus had spent time in Crete ministering to the church. And now Paul has left Crete, but Titus has stayed on. Now, the reason that Titus has stayed on is because of health. It's not Titus's health, but the health of the church because the church was actually not very healthy. It was an unhealthy church, and there's reasons for that. So I want to ask the question, what is it that made the church unhealthy? Now, let me say this, that um, there was something uh, which lended itself to making the church unhealthy, which was uh, something which, which uh, grew out of... Uh, an issue that was deeply rooted in the culture of the Cretan people. Um, Paul talks about it in verse 12 of chapter 1, if you have a look at verse 12. I'll read that for you. Listen, listen to what Paul says. He says, um, Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Uh, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound or healthy in, in, in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Now, what does he say about Cretans? He says that one of their own prophets has said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. It is not exactly a flattering description of a group of people, is it? And it's, it's something which is actually... It's one of those uh, things which has found its way into the English language. So if we're having you know, morning tea today and you walk up to me and say, Scott, you are such a cretin, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a bit sort of insulted by that because that means someone who's you know, not particularly a good person. It means someone who's a bit of, a, bit of an idiot. You know, it's, a, it's, an, it's an insult to call someone a cretin. And that was true in Paul's day, but it's not just Paul that's saying it. Now, this is important because Paul here quotes from a famous uh, Cretan philosopher. Uh, he was a guy who lived in the 6th century BC. His name was uh, Epimenides. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, but Epimenides was this guy's name. He was a, a Cretan philosopher. He was a critic 
of the, uh, of the Cretan culture. And uh, he was venerated as being more than just a philosopher, uh, more than just a philosopher, but actually a prophet. Uh, so uh, this is what that guy said. And in the ancient world, the Cretans had a dreadful reputation in the Mediterranean area. You know, Greek was the common language of the day, and the Greek word, uh, which means to lie, uh, is the word kretizo. Guess where it comes from? It comes from Cretan. To be a, 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 a Cretan and a liar was synonymous. To be a Cretan was to be a liar. Now, I'm not sure why their culture was worse than the culture of the other peoples around at that time. Uh, it might have something to do with being an island, you know, where you're isolated from the mainland and, the, uh, and, and also you're kind of influenced by the culture of, uh, of uh, sailors and, and that sort of thing. That could have possibly been part of it. But um, what is important is that it was important for Titus to be aware of the cultural context. It's important for all church leaders, and I would argue it's important for all Christians to be aware of the culture that we are living in, uh, because the culture that we are living in impacts on us as individuals and on our church life. We are soaked in that culture before we become Christians. Uh, we, we carry that culture into our uh, Christian lives, and we live in that culture every day. So it impacts us personally and it impacts the life of the church. Now somebody raised a very helpful question about this in one of my Bible study groups during the week. Uh, and the question was, if that's what people thought of the Cretan culture and both Titus you know, needed to be, and Paul needed to be aware of that so, so as to minister effectively, then what, what do people think of the Australian culture? Uh, particularly, not not we Australians. What we, not not what do we think of the Australian culture? But what do people outside of our culture think of the Australian culture? Because that might be helpful for us to be aware of. Now, there has been some research done on this. Uh, there are uh, there are people who make a lot of money by being international experts uh, who advise national governments on what the rest of the world thinks about their country. Uh, and particularly they talk about the brand name of their country. And governments pay big bucks to these people to get their advice so that they can, you know, take that advice, feed it to their spin doctors and then get marketing campaigns going around the world that will change what people think about uh, their culture if it needs to be changed. The Australian government... Uh, is about to launch on a $20 million uh, propaganda, uh, advertising campaign uh, to not for us to change the image of Australia but to maintain the image because they've employed a guy by the name of um, Simon Anholt is his name and his company currently ranks Australia as being number ninth in the world in terms of uh, having a good brand name. And what he says... Uh, you probably, they probably could have saved a bit of money just by asking any of us uh, about it. But what he says is that Australia is most connected uh, overseas with tourism, lifestyle, food, and I quote, soft stuff like that, unquote. 
it's better than being known as a pack of liars, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but it means that you know, we Christians are going to bring some of the soft, easygoing lifestyle uh, into our Christian lives and into the life of our church, and it will affect our spiritual lives and the spiritual health of, uh, of us as a group of Christians, as a family of God's people. And so we need to be aware. I'll say something about that a bit later on. But in the same way, the culture of the church in Crete uh, was influenced by the culture of the island that that church was on. Uh, if you have a look at verse 10, you see something of that. In verse 10, uh, Paul says to, to Titus, uh, for there are many rebellious people, rebellious people, uh, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, for whatever reason, the Cretan culture had, uh, society had nurtured people who, you know, who were deceivers. They, they were liars. They were brutal. They, they were lazy. And as you would expect, some of that baggage is carried on into the life of the church. So, you know, rebellious people, I guess another, we talk about loose cannons, don't we? You know, there were loose cannons uh, in that church who had no uh, regard for rightful authority. And so they would go around and they would be, uh, you know, disparaging rightful authority and they would be teaching things to people that really they shouldn't have been teaching them. Uh, you see that in verse 11, that they cultivated relationships with people in the church and they taught them things which were simply not true. Now, Paul says that the reason that they did it is for dishonest gain. It's very interesting when you look at the rest of the chapter, which we won't get into uh, particularly, but the, the, what these people are like is the exact opposite to what elders in the church should be. So one of the qualifications for an elder is that an elder must not be into you know, um, dishonest uh, financial gain. He must be countercultural. Uh, to these people. Now, you know, the dishonest gain probably refers to finance. They were making money out of, uh, out of religion. Um, but sometimes people uh, do this sort of stuff for reasons other than financial gain. It's other kind of selfish gain. Uh, for example, there are people who just simply love to have people following them. Uh, they love to uh, to be able to exercise a bit of influence, even a bit of control over the lives of people. Um, and uh, they, they, they do this sometimes by um, coming up with special teachings. I've come across people uh, who like to add some special teaching to the gospel, uh, some special teaching which distinguishes them from other Christians and other teachers, and makes them sort of seem a little bit more knowledgeable and a little bit, a little bit superior, you know, as if they're the ones who've got the full truth, as opposed to the ordinary truth. Um, I, did, did you see it in the Herald yesterday? This church in North Carolina, where else? But in good old U.S. of A. You see that? They're having a. Um, uh, you know, they're having a Bible-burning bonfire on Halloween. And uh, you think, whoa, you know, <laughs> burning Bibles? Why, why are they doing that? Well, they're, they're going to be burning um, all of the um, satanic, you know, you know, Bibles, the ones that are not quite kosher. 
uh, they're going to be burning um, the Bibles that you're using at the moment, NIVs, they're going to be burning ESVs, they'll be burning New King James versions, they'll be burning New American Standard versions, they'll be burning the Good News Bibles. So they're going to be burning every Bible except for one. Can you guess which one? The King James, <laughs> because that's the superior. See what, see what they're doing there? They're saying, you know, we've got the real truth. And all those other Christians, uh, well, they're all wrong. And it's attractive to some people. Although in this case, not too many. The congregation had about 14 members. <laughs> but it could be growing after that big publicity campaign. Now, a common problem in the early church was for people from, who were from a Jewish background to agree that the gospel was good you know, they would say, it is great that Jesus died on the cross. It is great that Jesus rose again. All that stuff that Paul and Titus and his mates are on about, that is, it, it's all terrific stuff. But if you want to be a full Christian, then you need to listen to us because we got the full truth. We got extra information. And this was going on in Crete. There were Jewish communities that were scattered all around the Middle East, including Crete. And as I mentioned on the day of Pentecost, there were people from Crete who went to Jerusalem uh, on that day. And some of these people would be saying that there's stuff in the Jewish law that you need to obey, like circumcision. And you see that uh, here in the text. If you have a look at chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says to Titus that the the, the circumcision group are there and they must be silenced. Uh, these were people that were, taught that, uh, were, were teaching that it's not enough to simply believe that Jesus died and rose again, uh, that you actually need to be circumcised as well if you want to be a fully-fledged Christian, if you're a bloke, that is. Uh, you see it again in chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul says to Titus, look, avoid the foolish arguments and the controversies and the quarrels about the law. He's referring to the Old Testament law there. Now, in a strange way, this sort of thing can be tantalising even to people like you and me. Not that we go out and get ourselves circumcised necessarily, but uh, you see, I think that there are there is, despite what the marketers say, that there are similarities with the Australian culture. We, we make heroes out of rebels, don't we? Um, Ned Kelly, you know, he's a hero. Uh, rebellion is good when it's rebellion against ungodliness. But in the church, we can be attracted to the person who's got the kind of new... Uh, edgy kind of teaching, you know, the, the, the person who pushes the boundaries of doctrine just a little bit further and, and so on. For example, in our own day, there's a, um, a lot of particularly younger Christians, but not just younger Christians, some older Christians as well, have been reading up on a thing called the New Perspectives on Paul. I want to say a great deal about that this morning, but some of you have probably heard about the New Perspectives on Paul. Uh, it's a fairly sophisticated kind of theological teaching which is attractive to certain people uh, which redefines uh, what Paul meant in terms of the gospel, uh, particularly in the book of Romans. And it's considered to be very, very cool. 
very cool, especially amongst intelligent, young, uh, zealous Christians, because it's edgy, uh, it's different, it's a little bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit more, a little bit different to what their parents taught them, and so on. But it's changing the way that people view the gospel. It sounds edgy, but as I talk to people, particularly those who are training young men and women for gospel ministry in theological colleges, they say it's edgy all right, it's actually blunting the gospel edge of people as they come out of theological college. And so that's just a contemporary example. Here in the, ch the church in Crete was not healthy, it was sick. And in verse 5, the reason Paul left Titus in Crete was to straighten things out. Now, the, uh, the word that, used, that Paul uses here to straighten uh, is the word orthos. Uh, it's the word that we get orthopedic from. Uh, it's the word that you use to refer to um, straightening up a, a broken leg, fixing up a broken leg like Ned's got, so that uh, you know, the person can walk straight again. And that's what Titus has to do. He has to straighten out the church so it can walk straight. Uh, Paul wants the church to be healthy. So what needs to happen? Well, I'm going to say a lot more about that next week. So hang on to then. But for now, let's just take a quick look, a very quick look at what Paul says right at the beginning of this letter. Let me read verses 1 to 4. He starts the letter by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son, in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Letters in the Bible are different to the way that we would write letters these days, although email is changing the whole thing. And what's that new thing that's happening? It's not email, it's something else. Andrew. Waves. Forget about emails, folk. That's old hat. We're all going to be waving to each other from now on. But... Think traditional. Think traditional snail mail. You write a letter. You start at the beginning by saying who you're writing the letter to. You know, dear, you know, Peter, dear Laura, whatever. You go through the whole of the letter and you sign it off, you know, uh, dear Betty, you know, dear Nancy, dear Keith, whatever. Now, they didn't do that in the first century because letters were written on scrolls. <laughs> Imagine you're, you receive the scroll you're not going to have to unwind the entire scroll so that you can look to the bottom of it to see who it's from. So they would say right at the very beginning, you know, who the letter has come from, who the scroll is from. That's what Paul does. But Paul does more than that. He takes advantage of this custom to, uh, in identifying himself to uh, actually say something which sets the agenda for the whole of the letter. He identifies himself as Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the word apostle simply means messenger. And so Paul serves God by delivering a message from Jesus. 
Now, why does he do that? tells us he does that so that others will have faith and a knowledge of the truth, a truth which is based on the hope of eternal life. But what is the end goal? What is God's purpose? What does this faith and this knowledge lead to? Well, verse 1 tells us, doesn't it? It is godliness. Godliness is the end goal. Healthy teaching of the gospel creates healthy faith which creates godly people. Can I say that there's... uh, it's like there's this, this godly DNA which, uh, is past, which flows on through the church. Paul taught godliness to Titus. He refers to him as my true son. And he's a spiritual offspring of Paul, my true son in our common faith. So Paul taught godliness to Titus. Titus, we see in this chapter, is to appoint godly men uh, to, uh, to, to lead the church. Now, these godly men are to lead the church by teaching and modelling godliness to the whole of the congregation. So that in the end, and you have a look at it, you see it in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, that the, uh, the church is growing in godliness and members of the church are teaching and modelling godliness to each other. So, for example, the older women are to teach uh, the younger women how to be godly wives and, and godly mothers. Right? So you see this godly DNA starting from Paul, starting from God really, going th- through Paul, through Titus, through the elders, through the whole of the congregation, and the whole congregation interacting with one another in loving relationships where they're specifically wanting to model godliness and teach godliness to each other. A healthy church? That's a healthy church. Now, some might say, well, it sounds a bit inward-looking, though. (laughs) I mean, what about witness to others outside of the church? Well, it's not inward-looking because if you have a look at chapter 2, verse 10, this godliness, this godly DNA in the church uh, is, like, is like a garment that adorns the teaching of the gospel. So the slave is to be godly to his non-Christian master. And in doing so, he makes the teaching about our God and Saviour attractive. People want to know about more. People want to know more about what we believe when, when they see us and they feel that they are being treated in a godly way by us. It is powerfully attractive. It is powerfully attractive to non-Christians because remember the culture of, 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 the, of the island of Crete. Remember the culture of the, the reputation of the Cretans. They were always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. But in the midst of that culture, there was one group of people who would be countercultural. There was one group of people who would be known for the opposite. Not liars, but lovers of the truth. 
uh, not evil brutes, but loving, gentle people. Uh, not uh, lazy, but self-controlled. And it's fascinating as you look at the qualifications for an elder and, uh, and what's to be taught to uh, the old men, the young men, the old women, the younger women, self-control all the way through. These people are to be countercultural because Jesus has changed their lives. So what does it mean for us to be a healthy church? Let me get personal here and ask you the harder question, what does it mean for you to be a healthy Christian? <laughs> because the church is really the sum of the parts. Uh, it's godly individuals that will make a godly church. So what does it mean for you to be healthy as a Christian? Uh, let me ask you, are you committed to the truth of the gospel uncompromisingly? Because that's a theme that will come through in Titus. What about allowing that truth of the gospel to change your character? Do you think about the culture that you live in, the culture that you bring in, that, that, that is actually in your life? Do you think about the areas, the, the way that you have been shaped as a person which need to change because of the gospel, because there are ungodly aspects of our culture and you as an individual? Do you think that through? We'll talk about that more next week. Uh, the, the experts say that uh, we Aussies are known for lifestyle, food, and soft stuff like that. But friends, Jesus doesn't call us to a lifestyle which is soft. Uh, he doesn't call us to lifestyle in the way that our world perceives lifestyle. He calls us to a radically different lifestyle, a lifestyle of godliness, a lifestyle of sacrificial commitment to God and to each other and to our world. It's a lifestyle of repentance. It's a lifestyle of taking up our cross daily and following him. It's hardly soft, is it? But it's the counterculture, countercultural nature of this that makes us different and will be a very, very powerful witness to our world. Why not read through the rest of Titus during the week in your prayer times and pray through the areas where you need to change. And we'll come back and we'll talk about it next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you um, have provided us with a basically a blueprint for what it means to be healthy Christians and to be a healthy church. Father, we know that we are Christians in a culture that is intrinsically sinful and uh, we pray that uh, you would help us to be people who live counterculturally because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Father, um, reveal to us the areas in our own individual lives that, uh, where we have just absorbed the uh, culture around us where we need to repent. And Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to grow to be people who really, really love your word uh, but are just as deeply committed to um, changing who we are so that we are in conformity, so that we would grow to be godly people and that we would be a godly church and that you would be honoured through that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.